0: You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Well, our subject tonight is the famous UFO abduction case of Travis Walton celebrating its 40th anniversary this month. Well, we have reviewed the new documentary film called Travis that premiered in February at the 2015 International UFO Congress Film Festival in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it swept the EB Awards for the Best Long Documentary Film (laughs) and the People's Choice Award. Travis is now, well, it's a 90-minute documentary. It's a film recounting of the now world-famous 1975. UFO abduction of Travis Walton and the impact it has had on his life over the intervening 40 years. Wow, that's longer than we've been on, re- on the air on 21st Century Radio. Now, on the lives of others who were also involved. Now, you can view the trailer at TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. That's TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Jennifer W. Stein is a self-taught filmmaker who never went to film school. She is an entrepreneur who started making films in the 1990s while running a non-profit organization, well, organizations, raising her two children and running a special events business. Well, it looks like she's doing everything. She's an everything type of person. Since 1999, Jennifer has been making documentary films and has won numerous EB Awards for her UFO-related film work. In 2012, Jennifer won two Open Minds International UFO Congress EB Film Festival Awards for her co-production of The Disclosure Dialogues with Ron James. She again succeeded in winning two more EBs at the 2015 Open Minds Film Festival for her film Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton, which she co-produced with Bob Terrio. I hope I pronounced Bob's last name correctly. Did I pronounce Bob's last name correctly? Yes, you did. I did? Did I win a prize?
1: Uh, Of course. (laughs) Okay, well, I just won two... another DVD.
0: Okay, thank you. I just also won $200,000 for that one, friends. See what happens when you listen to 21st Century Radio, or at least what I think that happens. How did you find your way into filmmaking, Jennifer?
1: Well, I um, was always trying to do things economically, and I realized that I could do it myself rather than hiring somebody else to do stuff. And that's how I started making films. And then I realized that it was a powerful way to communicate story. Mm -hmm. And I just decided it was more what I wanted to do than... Run that next bar or bat mitzvah, or that next, you know, business conference, or whatever mm-hmm. I was being hired to do in my events business, and um, I I liked the creativity that it provided me, and I knew it was long range impact. What I was doing was more like performance art, sort of, mm-hmm. because I had to have an event ready by a certain date and time, and uh, when I did film, I could. You know, shooting was always intense. That was like an event. But um, editing I could do till 1, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning in the comfort of my own studio. I didn't have to worry about people stealing equipment from me or arguing over, you know, labor laws or union people refusing to, to turn tables for me to get my wedding off the off the road because the, the wedding before ran over or something. So mm-hmm. it just seemed like a better... Um, you know, a more more powerful and more impactful endeavor for me to sink my teeth into. And I like a challenge, so <laughs> I, well, I certainly uh, bit off more than I thought I could chew in the, in the Travis event.
0: Well, I'm so glad you did bite off more than you can chew because, you know, usually, especially in the arts, it takes a heck of a lot more to do something really good than most people think. You've just got to put your entire life into it. And uh, obviously, you know how to do that with your life. And most other people, I think, would have been maybe a little bit too inhibited to go that way. I remember when I used to get frustrated with photographers not shooting things right and everything like that. That's when I became a photographer a while, but I hated it. And I know just how you feel that, boy, you are in control that way. You don't have to dis- <laughs> you don't have to discuss, hey, I, want, I think this has to happen or that has to happen. You can move along much more rapidly that way for that freedom. But, again, it costs you uh, in energy and time, right? That's right. Yeah, That's right.
1: Everything has a cost. There's no real free ride in life as much as we'd like to think there is.
0: Yeah, that's true. How did you come up with the name for your production company, On Wings? Am I pronouncing that correctly, you Wings? You
1: are. You are.
0: Well, and I want another $100,000?
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it stemmed from my maiden name, which was Wing. I am uh, Norwegian and uh, in my father's uh, ancestral background, so Wing, W-I-N-G-E, is my maiden name. Oh. And I wanted to, um, even though when I got married, I changed my name to Stein, which is means stone in German, um, I wanted to bring back in that energy from my own name, that I, you know, my birth name. So I um, started email when I when I needed to come up with an email account. I used the name Wing and I put an O N on the beginning and an S on the end because I needed that many number of letters for the first email account, and it kind of stuck. Good and um, since I w- had been using On Wings for years, um, that's where I sort of came up with a name for the production company. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of silly and simple, but. Um, you know, like they say, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it was easy for me to remember, and um, it kind of brought in. I, I also was a student of Zachariah Sitchin's, and I studied, you know, the winged disc and the philosophy of Egypt yeah. that was related to that concept. Uh, some people think it stretches into the UFO phenomenon it and I, I liked sort of the metaphysical and spiritual connection that it had.
0: Yeah, you got so, multiple levels there, don't you?
1: Yeah, it it, it was a good... I, I, I could do some good um, drawings with it. I could have a good business card mm-hmm. with a wing disc on it. So yeah. that's where On Wings production sort of came together.
0: Well, tell us how the film idea with Travis got started.
1: Well... Um, It's kind of funny because I really didn't start out to make a UFO film or to really make a full-length version documentary film about Travis. I toyed with the idea, but I wasn't quite sure that I had it in me and that I had the budget or the finances to do it. But I met Travis uh, being introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Bob, actually, Peter Robbins. Uncle Um, Peter. Peter and I were, um, I I was assisting Peter when he was running one of the Roswell conferences in Roswell, New Mexico in 2010, and he invited Travis to have dinner with us, and I was thrilled because I, of course, always heard about the Travis Walton story, but I had never met Travis directly. So in 2010, we had dinner together, and we started to talk about the fact that the Roswell conference draws over 10,000 people to the town of Roswell every year. And it's become a major economic boom for that city. And most of the people there are grateful to talk, share, acknowledge the Roswell story. Um, and it's, it's, it's just become a very important conference. So we were having dinner with Travis saying, you know, Travis, your story is just as important as the Roswell story. Yeah, for Have sure. Have you ever considered doing a conference around your story somewhere in northern Arizona. And he had, but, of course, running a conference is a lot different than being invited to speak at a conference. It can be daunting putting a conference together. And Peter and I had a lot of experience doing that. I, myself, professionally, because I was an event coordinator for 15, 18 years, and I'd done weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs, conferences, all sorts of things, you name it. And Peter knew that about me, and Peter also had been a consultant on a lot of conferences, like McMinnville and Roswell and Exeter and the Experiencer Speak Conference up in Maine, as well as a number of other conferences over the last, you know, 20 years that he's been on the speaking circuit. So he said, how about Jen and I uh, become like conference coaches, and we start meeting and talking and emailing with you about how to put it together. I and mean, there are certain logical steps. So one of the things Travis wanted to do, this, this does get back to the film, and I'll, I'll get there quickly. One of the things Travis wanted to do in hosting a conference is to be able to take people back to the actual site where his abduction took place, which was up in the Sidgraves National Forest. It's a plateau that's about 7,000 feet high. It's the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world. and In November, it could be snowing up there, which actually it did this year (laughs) at the conference. So if the weather is treacherous, it makes the roads impassable, and taking a group up there that have paid and registered and are happy and excited to go into the forest but actually can't just because of the mud and the, the difficulty in getting there, we decided we would do a virtual film of the of, of the site well or actually did not even a virtual film but like a tour of the site with some of the guys involved from the crew and in the event that we couldn't take people there we had a backup if in case we sold tickets for 30 40 or 50 bucks a piece to you know hike people up into the forest we would have a film we could show them mm-hmm. so that's what we did we, I started out in as a conference coach organizing a shoot to create A film and my co-producer, who did the film with me, named Bob Terrio here in Philadelphia. He actually edited that whole piece together himself, and it's called Tracking Skyfire. And it's a recount of that day, that famous historic day of November fifth, nineteen seventy-five, where the boys were picked up, where they lived, had the route they took to get up to the forest, what happened at what time, and you know sort of the pursuit that took place for five days following that, um, looking for Travis. It doesn't really go into depth about the polygraph and other things like that, but it's just a short, concise, uh, hour-long, you know, um, intense documentary on that topic alone. And wait, wait a second. Is done, this,
0: was this this... The, the one that we see? Uh, no, the, the one
1: that you saw was was a more elaborate production. I see. So, so Bob yeah. and I finished tracking Skyfire, and Bob did you know, like 99.9% of the work. I did the shooting with him, and I organized uh, the trip out there and uh, you know covered all of our expenses and everything to get that done. And we did it in time for a conference that, that never happened in 2013, but we were hoping it would. We, we were advising Travis to do conferences every year for three, four, or five years to build up to the 40th anniversary event so that he would get experience coordinating a conference or that he would build a crew of people around him who would be able to manage the conference. And people who were on site, because I live in Philadelphia. Um, Peter lives in Ithaca, New York. You know, we weren't on site to run around and hang posters. So he was going to need a crew of people to help him get the conference up and running. But I thought if we had a film, in, in the event that we couldn't take people to the to the actual site, that that would help. And then when we finished that in 2013, I realized that I could actually add some in-depth interviews with some of the crew people and maybe the polygraph uh, Specialist, if he was still alive, some of the police officers at the time, if they were still alive, and possibly some other crew or family members, and really turn it into a a really in-depth documentary following Travis's book.
0: Well, you sure did do that. You well, thank
1: you. I I you have done pushed to get it done almost a year in advance of the fortieth anniversary. Mm -hmm. so that the film could serve as a promotional platform to bring people out to Heber for this conference, which just happened. We just had the 40th anniversary this past November 5th. It was uh, 40 years to the day, and uh, we had a great conference. And and we did show the film there at at this conference as well.
0: Was Peter there this time? What, was who? Was Peter Robbins there this Peter time? Peter
1: was there. Peter he was. Peter came out. Yep, yep. God bless his there. soul. The, the original crew of uh, counselors and coaches were there. We, um, a group of us uh, attend UFO conferences regularly, so whenever we, we found ourselves at a UFO event, like we, we often did in Arizona at the uh, International UFO Congress, we would meet for breakfast for years and try to plan this, uh, this conference. And um, many of the people who were there at those breakfast meetings were all there at the conference. And many of the original crew members as well, those that are living, most of them were there. There was only one that couldn't make it. That was Steve Pierce. But mm. all the other guys uh, came. And also Kenny Peterson. He was, he was supposed to be there, but a family emergency called him away. So,
0: How fortunate. And how fortunate for you to have done that hour piece before. Yeah. Because plenty of times it's when you're the first thing you do that really opens up in, in yourself and externally as well, just how much you can really accomplish or not accomplish. You you know it's like getting there and getting it started, and I think that really made a difference. This was especially good film, especially in the, oh boy, when we get a chance to talk about one. I think one of the greatest things you guys did, you exposed. Some individuals who are debunkers that have been needed, that research should have been done on these guys for such a long time. Uh, And I think you know who I'm talking about. Okay, time out here on the playing field. Uh, Our guest is Jennifer Stein. I'm Zechariah Sitchin. You are listening to uh, 21st Century Radio
2: with uh, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. I'm always happy to be on your show and on Zoe's show because... uh, it makes a lot of difference when
0: the interviewer is knowledgeable and intelligent. Rules and regulations on 21st Century Radio is that we do read all of our books. And so some of these books, when I mean, you've got to read them and there are 500, 600, up to 800 pages, that's pretty tough to do. But we do it because we like to learn. Our guest is Jennifer Stein, executive producer and director of Travis, a 90-minute documentary film recounting the famous 1990, excuse me, 1975 UFO abduction of Travis Walton. Oh, gosh, you know, Peter was with us. He was our tour guide to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Last year, we were actually, we came home uh, last year about two days ago. This is quite a whole series of synchronicities. This is quite interesting. When things uh, like this happen as far as I'm concerned. You've you've seen him just yesterday or so?
1: Uh, Travis? Yeah. Well, uh, last week I uh, got home, um, I guess, uh, on the 15th. I had also gone to the Lachlan UFO Conference um, that was done in Lachlan, Nevada, um, November 14th and 15th, and I uh, showed the film there, so I was only, um, you know, I, I was with Travis at that conference, so um I think I came home Monday the sixteenth
0: Well, I was actually talking about um Peter Robbins
1: oh peter Uncle yes, peter yes, peter, but... peter was there too at at uh at the fortieth anniversary conference in Phoenix with um with Travis and I and a group of other people. And I think he went off and did some other traveling as well before he came back to Ithaca.
0: Oh, well, that sounds like Peter, all right. <laughs> he does. How has this film been received by audiences?
1: Very well, Bob. I have been so pleased. Almost um, immediately I was getting phone calls. Um from the International UFO Congress. People who had been at the Congress picked up the film and returned home with it. Some people from Canada, people from Australia, England, um, even South America, Hawaii. People were calling me to arrange screenings, as well as a number of uh, MUFON groups around the country. They were also calling me because I'm a member of MUFON. So Uh, People immediately asked if they could screen it and show it, and I've done a lot of Skype and uh, calls with different groups after the film was shown, if I couldn't be there in person. So I have been very, very pleased with the turnout and, and the response from the film. You know, people tend to think that the Fire in the Sky film that was done by Paramount in 1993 was telling the true story, and it's really not um, the true story of what happened to Travis. It's close to the story, but it's a fictionalized version of the story. Mm -hmm. Not all the characters were particularly the same in that film, and the actual events that happened on board the craft were very different. So the audience who sees this film is really very grateful to actually get the facts clear and straight. Um, I think it helps not to muddy the water, especially when you're dealing with a phenomenon that's as out of the box as this Mm
0: -hmm. one. Sure.
1: You really want to have the story straight, and Travis's story is really significant and unique for for many reasons, and I think that's what attracted me to wanting to really document and archive this for future generations, because... um, who knows if we're going to have books in another sixty years, right? Yeah,
0: that's a very sad problem, and I'm so glad you're involved in making sure that uh, people spend some time reading because it's with the younger people, it's a serious problem.
1: Yes, they they the younger generation gets their information in sound bites, right? And mm-hmm. they don't know history, and um, I think that the Travis Walton case is not only a significant UFO story, but it's a significant story for beginning to open people's minds and shift their consciousnesses about the reality of whether or not we're alone in the universe. And there's a good chance we're not.
0: Oh, I don't think there's a chance in any in the world that we're this. (laughs) I mean, I think it's overwhelming. But, you know, but your film does more than even that. Do you know Why? Yes, you'd probably know why. Well, tell
1: I'll, me, Bob. I'll what tell you,
0: you why. Because, you see, you know, uh, we've been doing shows for, well, I've been involved in doing shows over 40-some years. But uh, one of the biggest questions that all of us had, especially that back there in the uh, 70s, 80s, and, and, and then in the 90s, was who in the world was giving Phil Class the money? To do the kind of things that he was doing.
1: Yes. You
0: guys. You guys hit it right on the head. And you did it so well. And uh, I. You know. No UFO researcher. Should. There's not a single UFO researcher. That should not. Well let's put it this way. All of them have to see this film. Because all of us had. Our suspicions. But the kind of research you did proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Phil class was involved in some ways uh, with uh, the FBI and others and he was a, de- a pain you know, he was a, a debunker that was actually paying other people to debunk this yeah. is we none of us could figure this out uh, yeah. so, the,
1: Well, t- I spent a lot of time reading his files in Philadelphia it's very interesting to me that his files are archived along with um, the gentleman who was responsible for the Condon Report.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, oh, his yes. name was Robert Condon. Yeah. Um, and also uh, the former head of astronomy from Harvard University.
0: That's Don Menzel. Was a
1: big debunker for a long time. His name was
0: um, Don Menzel, Menzel
1: Howard yeah. Menzel. Yeah. So... Um, th- you know, and he was like the well-known debunker before Philip Class was around. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that their documents are archived in the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, but so are Philip Glass's. Yeah. And it takes an awful lot of money and time and energy, and, you know, you have to be really considered someone very significant and important for 20th century thinking to have your material archived in a place like this? I mean, my gosh, they've got Thomas Jefferson's, right? And Ben Franklin's, and, you know, a lot of other very significant people from history. But why is Philip Class considered an important person from history? It's not like he was, you know, the head of an astronomy department at a university. He was just a writer from um, Air and Space Magazine, you know, or Aviation Weekly. So why? Um, I I think it's quite clear that there is a desire to archive the debunking that he deliberately did on this topic, so that people researching famous UFO stories would come across it and still consider the, you know, a bunch of these stories bogus. But of course, in Travis's case, the more you read and the more you dig, the more you realize how insane his arguments were and how he took things out of context he twisted words around he deliberately repeated things in shorter sentences dropping out very critical parts of conversation yes,
0: yes so yes. that the
1: meaning was changed in many cases and he did this to certainly everyone involved everyone. in the travis case i mean yeah. he didn't reach out to travis which was interesting i guess because travis was a little untouchable and phillips idea was that Mike Rogers had come up with this cockamamie idea of getting out of a forestry contract and still getting paid and therefore ripping off the the federal government Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the Forestry Service is part of the federal government. So he, um, uh, it it went as far as a, a federal investigator being hired to come up with several indictments against Mike Rogers, which all could not be proven. And therefore, they had to be completely dropped. Um, he even uh, said that Mike had come up with a fictitious person, whom was really uh, a member of his family, who I think worked for the Forestry Service. And uh, this federal investigator showed up at a family reunion, attempting to arrest Mike, and he couldn't because none of the counts of indictment were 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 true. And that really frustrated. <laughs> Philip Class to no end.
0: Well, I'm glad it did because he has done so much damage. Yes. So much because the media, you know, uh, the media is who is ever in control of it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting any facts off of anything, but the media uses shortcuts and, and they would always go to Phil Class. And he would forever debunk. Just about every any UFO story but and and, and with the uh, with uh, uh, this particular case here with Travis, he was trying to locate I don't know how many people you have discussed in the in the book of uh, giving them ten thousand dollars. he would go to them and say, "We will give you this ten thousand dollars if you will debunk this
1: case
0: and no, well, he could get no one
1: right he, well, he could he... get no one actually particularly targeted the youngest member of the crew named steve pierce because he thought that the youngest one needed the money and might actually take it and then sort of go into hiding Mm -hmm. Um, steve was harassed quite a bit as all the men were on this story steve actually moved out of town he moved to texas and he started using his middle name jeff instead of his first name steve and Philip chased him down, actually flew out to Texas, took him out to dinner and tried to convince him to uh, say that this wasn't true. And What's very interesting is that it's not really clear how Philip would have proved that it wasn't true because Steve had already passed a lie detection test Mm -hmm. stating that it was in fact true that they had seen a UFO and that Travis had been hit by it and he had gone missing. So exactly how was Philip going to prove that this was a lie. I mean, that was still part of the required. uh, I'm assuming the required contract, but we don't actually know. And Travis actually thinks that maybe Philip knew that Steve was, you know, couldn't couldn't you know retract the lie detection test and and. It was a, probably a promise that Phil was never going to have to pay, but maybe he could trick Steve into some sort of a statement and then never fulfill on the payment. So yeah. it's really not clear, but what's also very interesting is there was a local sheriff in uh, Holbrook that delivered, it was either Holbrook or Snowflake, that actually delivered this written bribe. It was sent via, I think, Western or something. So there is actually documentation that this was a true bribe that was delivered. Whether or not um, he called the police department and asked one of the sheriffs to deliver it. I think his name was was Click or or Flick or Flack Flake or something like that. One of the local police officers actually went to Steve Pierce's house and tracked him down through his mother and then delivered the bribe to Steve.
0: Well, Uh, uh, you know, there, the entire group, of course, including Travis, took many lie detector tests.
1: Yes, it how, wasn't just how, Okay, mine. how
0: many did they fail?
1: Uh, they didn't fail any of them. There was one guy that had an inconclusive because he got all flustered and he didn't finish the test and he walked out. And oh. I think that was Alan Dallas.
0: Yeah, that was in um, the very beginning. though. That right?
1: was in the very beginning. That's yeah. when Travis was still missing, and these mm-hmm. boys were essentially being accused of murder. That's right. And they were afraid that if they, um, by taking this test, that would be tr- they would be tricked somehow yeah. into admitting a murder that they didn't do, and they would be arrested and thrown in jail and possibly tried for murder and maybe even spent the rest of their lives in prison if Travis didn't come back. I mean, there were a lot of unknowns going on. It's probably why this case made international news, Mm -hmm. because it was immediately a homicide story, a UFO story, and a missing person story, you know, and and bizarre at that. So once it was out of the box, the story was out of the box, right, You, you, you couldn't, like, pack it back into some neat little story of some, you know, misidentified missing person or some object or something that was misidentified. It There were over five hundred people looking for Travis in the woods. I mean, everybody knew about this in Northern Arizona. And And boy,
0: and again, the film does this so well. You get to see how 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 much damage to all of these, all of the people that were involved in it had when they had the face. And, of course, they didn't necessarily, there were times when they weren't too happy with Travis. Is that correct?
1: Correct. I mean, Travis wasn't the only one getting uh, ridiculed. Yeah. Yeah, everyone in the town was, was getting ridiculed, especially the people involved in the case.
0: We have a timeout here on the playing field on 21st Century Radio. As a matter of fact, yes, our guest is Jennifer Stein. She's the executive producer and director of Travis, a 90-minute film documentary recounting the famous 1975 UFO abduction of Travis Walt. That was a segment from Dr. Queen's A Horror's Interview with Travis back there in 1993 on, let's see, that was The Fire in the Sky, that's when it was called then, uh, yes, indeed, and I was a bit disappointed in that particular film. I'm sure Travis was, too. And I bet you were, too, weren't you, Jennifer?
1: Well, I um, at the time when I first saw it, it was the best thing that was out there. And I think it brought a lot of people's attention to this interesting story. Mm-hmm. But since it changed the facts, it really led people astray as well. Yeah. And I think it uh, painted uh, not really the correct light. Uh, On the whole topic, because if you know the true story, it really begins to open your consciousness and you want to read and learn more. And You're fascinated by this amazing event. Mm
0: -hmm. How did you get the archived footage?
1: Well, I worked with Stanton Friedman. And if you remember, Stanton says in the documentary, he says, I was hired to be a co-script writer and a consultant on a documentary film about the UFO topic, and this was done in 1978. So it was through Stanton that I contacted the producer he worked with, and he was still alive. His name was Brandon Chase, and he lives in California. So I called the Chases up. uh, Their phone still worked, and I convinced them to let me use the footage in the Travis Walton film for the 40th anniversary event that we were doing. And um, that's how I came across it.
0: Well, Stan Freeman has been a real pillar in the research community in this area. He's one of the great leaders.
1: Yes, uh, he is. Well, I hope
0: he lives another 50 years or so.
1: From your mouth to God's ears, me too.
0: Yeah, great man. Uh, did you have any challenges while filming?
1: Yes, um, we we did. Um, there were all sorts of pure... You know, there's, there's always issues that come up. You know, you always have mic issues and whatnot. The location up in the forest was quite difficult to get to, especially with a lot of equipment, because you had to hike in there. And it's about maybe, I don't know, a quarter of a mile hike uh, from the nearest road, from the Rim Road. So we eventually, Travis and I, making so many trips back and forth to the car and up to the site and back and forth that we finally decided we'd like clear a path. So we spent a half a day moving boulders and chopping down small trees in order to drive closer into the site so we didn't have to schlep so much equipment. I was convinced we were going to actually destroy the rental car I had arranged to get Um, But we we didn't, and uh, that was a challenge. We also used, um, we had a wonderful uh, camera assistant who came up from the Gilbert area in Arizona that Travis had found. His name is Gary Hilton, and he flies a helicopter drone. It's a small little camera mounted on on this cute little drone that lifts up into the air, and uh, we lost one of those in the forest. So Travis and I actually had to spend a day finding it, and we were, you know, worried we were going to be lost, run out of water, uh, run out of cell phone power, and um, not really know where we were because we had to hike into a part of the forest that was sort of, you know, uh, off the beaten track, so to say. We, We wanted to capture this beautiful rim that is, that you hear described so beautifully we wanted to capture this plateau so we took a risky move and we decided to fly a drone off a very rocky steep cliff in sixty foot ponderosa pine trees and sure enough the drone was challenged by the wind gusts that were up there and it tipped it sideways it lost power and it dropped into this forest and it's about a two thousand dollar piece of equipment so mm-hmm. we We had to go looking for it, and um, there was no, you know, uh, organized path to get there, so to speak, and it was, you know, that was a little challenging.
0: How did you get, is that how you got the aerial shots above the forest floor?
1: Yes, that's how we got
0: it. That's really impressive filmmaking. Really, it is. Yes. Again, great camera people and a drone. Boy, I I didn't know how... uh, you guys, uh, I, and you didn't have that much experience with drones yourself, right? I
1: didn't know how to fly them at all. And you actually are not allowed to fly them unless you are an experienced pilot and you have a pilot's license, because they don't want these running into airplanes. And if you you could send it five miles up, and literally it could fly into a you know a prop plane or into an engine of a jet or something, and Uh, caused that plane to crash. So you have to know what you're doing with these. um, No uh, easy feat. Wow. I was very, very, very grateful that uh, Gary was interested in our project and uh, came up and helped us with it.
0: Now, before we go into next hour, are you going to be with us a little bit next hour? Yes, I am.
1: I'm going to be standing by. I understand you'll be with Travis, and if there's a problem with his phone or anything like that, I'll be here.
0: Good going. Now, why... Again, I'm going to repeat this uh, we touched on in the beginning. Uh, why has Travis's case remained one of the most famous cases of UFO abduction on record?
1: Well, there aren't too many cases where all there were where there are seven people that observe a craft that there there's a direct encounter where someone goes missing and someone's missing five days, and all the crew members who were on this crew took lie detector tests and eventually all passed these lie detection tests and the whole town was involved in hunting for him so the number of people involved in this case is huge from the get-go and you know again lie detection is something that's quite expensive to have done so for them to have taken multiple lie detection tests or polygraph tests It's almost unheard of uh, in a a UFO case. So it brings more validity to the story. And then when you start to explore what Travis actually experienced, encountering more than one type of species and seeing more than one type of craft and being in some sort of aircraft hangar maybe or underground bunker or mothership somewhere up in the air, I mean, we don't know. Where he was, but his descriptions are fascinating, and he also did not have the typical type of abduction, as was portrayed in the Fire in the Sky film. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a uh, abduction in the case where, you know, he's knocked out. Well, yeah, he was knocked out, but but it wasn't like he was taken while he was asleep or he was paralyzed. When Travis woke up on that table, he had full control of his abilities, although he was in a weakened state. But he had full memories of what happened to him. Nothing about his memories were suppressed or needed the actual regression to come forward. He was only regressed because of the post-traumatic stress he was experiencing. So his case is very unique. And one other thing I like to point out to people is that Travis never had a choice to come forward or not which is what a lot of people do, you know, think a lot about. (laughs) If they've had, they say they get a regression, they realize they've had an abduction experience or they have missing time, nobody knows about it, so they can keep it quiet if they don't want to come forward with it. But Travis never had a choice. He was famous while he was missing Mm -hmm. because it broke as a homicide story and as a missing person story and a UFO story. So by the time he came back, there had been hundreds of people who had been looking for him for five days in the woods. So there was no putting it back in Pandora's box.
0: And it must have been so hard for the others uh, because they were being charged, uh, many people, especially even members in their family. Uh, certainly people in the town thought that the, that they indeed may have murdered Travis. That's right and that's they were right. all very close to him. I mean, you know that's what is so ironic about this because they were a real team this was a this is a team that worked hard for years together uh, you no know, lifetime friendships and things of that nature so it was uh it, it's quite different than most any other case that i've I've ever seen or read about uh, but I gotta tell you again what you accomplished. By setting the record straight in regards to, especially, did the de- debunking is much more important than I think. Well, most people would first understand because, you know, I'm sure you were conscious as to what was going on back there in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties with debunking, and you, you, know, you, you, especially a broadcaster like ourselves, we were forever attacked uh, by doing any shows on UFOs and that kind of thing. And uh, it really uh, made, it really I think what it did for that particular crew is that they really bonded in such a way that they became uh, much stronger. But boy, they still had a lot of pain to go through. It takes an awful lot to be put down time in and time again. Uh, I'm an artist. You're an artist. You know how it is. You're always going to be criticized no matter what, Right. You, you, there's no way in the world you're going to please over 30 or 40 percent of the people, uh, especially when you're doing work that happens to have any important history to it. So what would you like to leave with us before we go into the next hour and uh, and Brother, uh, brother <laughs> Travis is going to join us?
1: Well, I would just say to your listening audience, you're in for a treat. You're going to get to talk to the man himself.
0: This this guy, obviously, uh, really knows himself. You know that old phrase, man, know thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. Remember that one? As above, so below. He has been through the worst of things, and now uh, it's, I can't say he's going to be going through the best of things, but it's a heck of a lot better than it used to be. And we'll be back with our guest Jennifer Stein. And, of course, Travis Walton in just five or six minutes. This is 21st Century Radio. I'm what's left of the alleged Dr. Bob Hieronymus, a lowly Ph.D. hanging out in this part of the universe. And, of course, it's such a big place, I hardly know where it is most of the time. Our executive producer and research assistant, who is my boss and likes to push me around an awful lot, and she gets away with it all the time, because she's bigger than I am. And Noah Dankner. Noah Dankner, who holds the world's record of bench-pressing 622 pounds. Now... Uh, That's a lot of weight, it's true. But, you know, Noah Dankner is less than 115 pounds. How does he do it? Well, he must have a couple of UFOs helping him along the way. And, of course, uh, we are going to be joined tonight by two people this hour. Jennifer Stein, she's the executive producer and director of Travis, a 90-minute documentary film recounting the famous 1975 UFO abduction of Travis Walton, and uh, we'll be joined by Travis in just a little while, too. Now, let me give you an introduction to Travis. Sit up straight out there. No talking. That's right. Feet flat on the floor, eyes straight ahead, and you can chew gum. We allow you to chew gum every now and then. Now, Travis Walton was born February the 10th, 1953. He is an, was an American logger who was allegedly abducted by a UFO on November 5, 1975. While working with a logging crew in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest in Arizona, Walton could not be found, but he reappeared after a five-day search. The Walton case has received mainstream publicity and remains one of the best-known instances of alleged alien abduction. UF historian Jerome Clark, an old friend of ours, remember he did the UFO uh, Volumes 1 and 2? He gave us a half a dozen of them. We passed them out to the rest of the planet. And boy, do they love them. And he writes that, quote, Few abduction reports have generated as much controversy as the Walton case. It is furthermore one of the very few alleged alien abduction cases with some corroborative eyewitnesses, like six others, and one of the few alleged abduction cases where the time allegedly spent in custody of the aliens plays a rather minor role in the overall account. UFO researchers Jenny Randles and there's a fellow here by Peter Halge, or Hugh, well, it's going to be one or the other, write that, quote, neither before or since has an abduction story begun in the manner related by Walton and his co-workers? That's the voice of authority. (laughs) It didn't sound like it, did it? Well, furthermore, the Walton case is singular in that the victim vanished for days on end with police squads out searching. It is an atypical close encounter of the fourth kind, CE4, which bucks the trend so much that it worried some investigators others and others to defend it now i don't know if travis has gotten back to us yet are you with us yes yes he is indeed travis hello hello travis how are you tonight i'm fine that's a good thing too do you know you joined us on 21st century radio back in 1993 when when my wife interviewed you and was a you did a great job remember that
2: yeah, I uh, do. That
0: just stands out. <laughs> well, the, yeah, well she's yeah, say, she, she is an, a really good interviewer. Uh, and you were did a great interview there and we have some cuts here that we might play during this hour of that. But the last time you joined us this was March eighth, nineteen 1993. Uh your experience is now referred to as one of the most significant UFO events in history. Why do you believe that it is?
2: Well, there's a whole lot of factors, you know. I think that uh, having uh, six witnesses was very important. You know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, even at the time, Dr. Harder made the point that if you had six witnesses who said that they saw someone commit a murder, that would be considered an open and shut case. Yeah. But somehow, that when it's a UFO involved, even when the six witnesses pass lie detector tests. People are still nitpicking uh, and, uh, you know, I'll say. expressing doubt. And that it's really strange. Uh, either we're setting the bar too low for the death penalty or we're setting it artificially high for UFO cases.
0: Oh, I'm certain it's... Uh been set way too artificially high. Carl Sagan's made sure of that. Now would you share with us we haven't mentioned the names of your logger crew who experienced seeing you blasted by light and they thought you were dead at that time and how this event changed both your life and your crew's lives forever, didn't it?
2: Yeah, you know, Mike Rogers was the boss and you know, he uh was the focus of a lot of uh of the accusations just because he was the crew boss but um uh, some of the attempts to discredit the case also focused on the youngest member of the of the uh crew which who was steve pierce uh he was only 17 at the time he actually you know lied to mike and told him he was older than that in order to get the job but um the second oldest was uh ken peterson and then uh there was uh, Dwayne Smith, Alan Dallas, and John Goulet, uh mm-hmm. rounding out the seven men.
0: Well, uh, it's very unusual to have six, six witnesses, and then yourself, of course, continuing to exist after something like this. Uh, and, you know, the film that was done, uh, Travis, the film that was done was, was in my opinion really extraordinary and i've we've been talking to jennifer stein about it the uh, last hour and she's still with us at this time right now listening in uh one of the things that i found amazing and i really enjoyed your comments on this when you guys really looked into the individual phil class remember phil class
2: oh yeah uh he um You know, is best known and relevant to this case with coming up with a $10,000 bribe uh, offered to Steve to try to discredit it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it sure makes you wonder that uh, why anyone, uh, if they sincerely believed it wasn't real, would feel that a bribe was uh, (laughs) the the way to uh, discredit the case.
0: Well, we always heard about these bribes, but we never knew where he was getting his money. And uh,
2: obviously, you know, with his uh, nature of his work, uh, he couldn't have had that much extra money no. uh, laying around. And so uh, getting a hold of, through the Freedom of Information Act, the FBI investigation uh, file on Philip Klass, uh uh, document in there, there was a um, memo from J. Edgar Hoover himself to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And, you know, these documents are available to anyone through the Freedom of Information Act, basically turning the case over to the CIA. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a standard, uh, you know, recruiting tactic for the CIA, you know, to get some prosecutable offense. Uh, that they can use to, you know, leverage uh, cooperation from people. And, you know, of course, uh, the money I would uh, expect would come from whatever agency wound up, um, you know, being his handler.
0: Well, again, uh, as I mentioned to Jennifer, this is a truly remarkable expose that you guys did in this film. Every UFO researcher... Has, uh, that, that was serious about this work, has had to put up with his, I'll call it insanity. There's something wrong with this man. Uh, I've never met, and of course I've met him, uh, never met a meaner-spirited person in my life. Uh, that, uh, truly nasty. Yes, and, and the fact is, is that, that everybody in the media, especially the national media, they'd always have him on. They'd always have him on and he'd always say the same kind of things. And sometimes they would almost catch him like one of the one of the things he loved to do was near the end of any interview. If he's debating somebody, he would make a statement like, hey, well, you know, I got that information and oh, I'd love to share it with you. It's in the it's in the glove compartment of my car. And if you let me go out there and go get it, I could read it over the air. And, of course, they say, no, we haven't got time for that. And, and of course, at the end of the program, uh, the, it was overheard that, really, he didn't have anything like that in his glove department. It was a total bluff. He'd get away with yeah. all kinds of things like that. Uh, and actually
2: altering quotations. I mean, I, I would challenge any of his uh, surviving fellow skeptics to uh, justify altering a sentence to reverse the meaning yeah. in order to make it look like somebody said something that actually the total opposite of what was actually said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did that often. And I'm so glad that people documented this because, um, you know, he, he was fair haired with the government. He was fair haired. And yet, and yet in that report that you, you mentioned, uh, I, I don't know if it was J Edgar Hoover that said, you know, this guy's, um, now, they had checked into his uh, credibility, and they didn't think he was too credible.
2: Yeah, they said uh, uh, the bill should be most circumspect in any future dealings <laughs> with him. <laughs> and they actually <laughs> said, let's see, what was it? uh didn't seem to be in full possession of his faculty. So. I mean, that's an awful lot to say, Travis. <laughs> Jesus, where's <laughs> uh, Well, these government agencies have what they call useful idiots, you know. They don't have to respect people to make use of them.
0: Yeah, well, he he really uh, caused lots of difficulties for more than half the planet. Uh, How did it affect your relationship with the rest of the crew, your family and friends and neighbors about this, especially after you were gone for five days? Well,
2: you know, uh, the crew was, uh, for the most part, people I didn't hang around with much, you know. Uh, generally speaking, everybody, you know, had their own lives uh, away from the job, and we were really just together as a work crew. So, you know, the job went away as a result of the incident. So, you know, we didn't really have that much mm-hmm. reason to, you know, continue to associate. That's you know, in search of work, people. Uh, they went to various other places, other states. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it kind of broke us up and split us up in a way. But we've still, you know, in more recent years, tried to reconnect because we, we shared an experience that was so profound that, you know, it'll always link us uh, in uh, in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. a really profoundly life-altering uh, experience.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh... Now, the other wonderful experience uh, I had in in watching this a couple of times the other night was the lie detector tests. Uh,
1: Yeah,
2: well, you you know, at the time, the president of the American Polygraph Association said that the odds were over a million to one of there being any kind of mistake when you have that many people passing tests on the same issue. Uh, And that was when six tests were passed, but now there's been 16 past tests in connection with this incident i've i've passed five different tests from three different examiners who were you know at the top of their game uh, as far as polygraphy is concerned uh, those who do work for law enforcement are considered uh, you know the better qualified uh
0: again uh within the film itself you can begin to experience some of the things watching the film as it as it evolved made me feel more or less like i for the first time truly understood what the heck was really going on because i got confused back when there in the 1978 i have your 1978 book here i never got your 1995 one and i wanted to ask you one question but i'll have to ask you that question after we come back from our break and is that okay
2: Okay, I'll talk to you after the break.
0: All right, after the break, we'll talk about that. We'll be back with our guest, Travis Walton, and, of course, Jennifer Stein.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Betty.
2: And Bob Luca. And you're listening to...
1: 21st Century Radio, the Bob Hieronymus Show. <laughs>
0: I just love her energy. Okay, welcome back to 21st Century Radio. We're talking about a movie you got to see. It's called Travis. It's a 90-minute documentary film recounting the famous 1975 UFO abduction of Travis Walton. And it is important for many, many reasons. I've already mentioned why I think it's super important, in it? what it reveals about Don Menzel and Phil Klass, but also about the media, And uh, Jennifer Stein is still with us, and I'm going to ask her a question I I should have uh, asked her before, and then we'll get back to uh, Travis. Jennifer, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, all right. Are you sitting up straight?
1: I think I am.
0: Okay, and your feet are flat, flat on the floor, your eyes are straight ahead, and you're not talking to anybody else, right? Correct. All right, that's the way to go. But you can chew gum. We're still allowed. Now, how complicit is the media in deliberately debunking or lying to all of us, destroying the reputations of lives of those who just wanted to know the truth. I'm biased in this particular area, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you.
1: Well, um, media that's paid by large conglomerates um, these days are really not willing to... Share the real stories or the true stories. I've, um, I every once in a while I catch a news clip about a sighting that's happened, and there's usually a joke made somewhere around the news table, uh, debunking the the seriousness of the topic. Mm-hmm. Now I can say for myself, if I refer to myself as media, I'm independent media. I pay for and you know underwrite. The productions that I do and I'm very serious about it. I think you're only going to find independent filmmakers like James Fox and uh, you know, a few other people that are really willing to tackle this topic. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say there is a new television show uh, produced in California called Hangar One and they're covering MUFON files and investigations There's a couple of other uh, serious programs now out, Ancient Aliens and things like that. They're trying to do a decent job covering this topic. But um, generally, news media and even press print don't um, take the topic seriously. And I don't think they're allowed by um, the owners of the papers and the networks. And I think that that's why they don't address it. I think they're given direct orders not
0: to. I think you're absolutely right. You have just won a free trip to Bermuda and about $15,000. How do you like that? <laughs> that, that, that? I think that's exactly right because we do the same thing you do. We pay for this show. We don't have any advertisers. We have learned that advertisers will try to affect your programming sooner or later. Yeah. And we obviously were into this for the experience of of educating and especially getting other people to read uh, books, and that's the reason why I put so much emphasis on on books. Um, so, let let me ask uh, Travis. Travis, yes. Sir. Did you hear my question about the media? Would you like me to read well, it again?
2: Yeah, and you know, it's it's they don't have to actively uh, reinstitute this prohibition. You know, once they've got it. Going so where it goes without saying that this is not a worthy or serious topic, then you know they don't have to say it anymore, and it's it's a credibility issue. And I think you know the um, the debunkers and those, uh, especially the debunkers that are sponsored by the government, have uh, helped to foster this attitude amongst the media by you know mockery and and also creating the false impression that uh, UFO investigators just believe everything. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case at all. You know, uh, all of the um, investigators that were uh, interviewed for the Travis film are people who have uh, looked objectively at uh, huge numbers of cases and will say uh, this is not a legitimate case, and this one is. So, you know, it's a false impression that that they just, you know, are uncritical when they actually do have some very strict investigative protocol to separate the good cases from those that are, you know, explainable in other terms.
0: Yes. And and of course, uh, has the media let up on you yet?
2: Well, I think uh, things have actually improved. <laughs> it's it's remarkable. Uh, you know, there was a television interview here recently that uh, was quite uh, favorable, and the local paper uh, did a front-page article that was uh, very uh, uh, favorable. So there's been a sea change, uh, and it's because the kind of evidence that is presented in this film is 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 filtering out, and it's finally getting through uh, to people uh, near and far, you know. Um, and it's it's something that's taken on a life of its own. I'm, I'm getting um, emails and contacts uh, from around the world in some very obscure places that you never would have thought, you know, Tanzania and Mordova, and, you know, so some pretty uh, exotic places.
0: You know who would have really loved to have read your book and seen your film, Uh, Jimi Hendrix, did you know he had UFO sightings?
2: Well, you know, it's not just him. It's a lot of musicians.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: developed the theory about this, that there's something uh, called an alien muse. Mm -hmm. In other words, a lot of creative people, not just in uh, music, but in acting and even in scientific areas, have had their experiences uh, that inspire them to uh, you know you know to a, a higher level of uh, you know I think it's their own product but it's inspiration
0: mm-hmm. well the I know that uh, also of course John Lennon had an experience there in New York City yet uh, uh, sitting out on his uh, little balcony at the hotel. Uh, with his girlfriend at that time, it certainly wasn't uh, his particular wife at that time, and and he's sitting out there naked and seeing a UFO come in about three or four hundred feet above their hotel. Um, that's quite an experience that doesn't change. But I found out that there are many individuals I know, uh, I know who would love to see one. For most of all, uh, Ziggy Marley and the Marley family. Because I know that, uh, again, you have a very close tie. A lot of rock and rollers just are deeply involved in this. Paul McCartney, et cetera. Well, anyway... Well,
2: Muhammad Ali came I, here that's right. to train uh, uh, for the next fight immediately after my experience here.
0: Well, i be. What a synchronistic experience that must have been. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him?
2: Well, I uh, understand... No, I didn't. But I understand that he actually stayed in the place where... I just had my 40th anniversary conference. Isn't that uh, something? Commemorating this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the what I was well, heading to talk to you a little earlier about is uh I've read your 1978 book. I never did see I think my wife got the uh, your 1995 book, so I never got a chance to see fire. Well, that in was the 96,
2: sky. I think, but uh, you know, there's actually a 2010 edition too. Oh, really? Yeah, it's twice the size of the original.
0: Well, so you must have new information in there. Oh yeah. Well, I'll be. Yeah, I've always loved the photographs of the of the paintings. You want to mention anything about the artist who did some of the paintings that does? Well, it was
2: uh, Mike Rogers. Mike crew. Rogers. So, so you know, it started with him trying to uh, you know combine the uh, crews' descriptions of the craft itself. And, when, you know, I could see the, what he could do. I said, well, hey, how about, you know, uh, trying to represent the, uh, the creatures I saw. And that was a laborious process. I'm sure he was losing patience with me because I made him do it over like 20 times. No, that's not quite it. But, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, you know, he was inspired to paint better than he ever had in his,
0: well, I wonder if he was over ever uh, what used to be called uh, by Paul McCartney overshadowed in this experience. So, you know, I don't think, that, I don't think uh, you would accept this theory, or or necessarily Jennifer. But I don't think this was an accident that it happened to you. I know that you, you uh, at first your views of that abduction were have have changed a bit since um, all the over the last forty years. Uh, oh yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that because uh, there there is so much fear about yeah. these things, and yet you uh, you did some said some amazing things in in this film, Travis. Uh, you you sounded more like you were becoming a philosopher.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely inspired me to try to think, try to make some sense of it. You know that, and it t- it was a long, slow process. Uh, you know, at first the horror of it, you know, the impact of the experience itself, and then the, the terrible way I was treated in, in the media and the public reaction was very, very hard to cope with. So, you know, I had to dig deep. I had to do a lot of thinking. At the time the incident happened, you know, it was just so totally uh, terrifying that I, you know, basically you know, lost control of my, uh, you know, uh, courage, my fear, it just overcame me in a way that, you know, it's just hard to explain. And I've tried to, you know, uh, lay out the, the factors that made me lose control so, so completely. Mm-hmm. To, to regain consciousness and feel immediately the pain, the, the, something desperately, desperately wrong inside, that's the beginning feeling. And then the feeling that I can't get enough air, that I'm I'm struggling to, to breathe, and it's just, you know, it, it's a suffocating feeling. And suffocation is something that will generate panic, you know, to suddenly see these creatures so close and realize, you know, where I was.
0: You want to describe uh, these creatures?
2: Well, uh, they were hairless, very small, but had huge heads with with huge eyes and those eyes were the, were the thing that really bored into me literally. And I've come to to think that perhaps, you know, that their, um, um, psychic for one of a bird ability to control people comes from the eye. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was driven home to me here recently. I had a medical doctor at one of my conferences that came up to me and said, you know, uh, it is a fact that the eye is actually an extension of the brain behind it. There's a, an opening through the skull. If you were going to try to project uh, some sort of energy from the brain, it would make that it could come through these eye stalks towards the front of the head. And uh, so, you know, I'm thinking that that was what uh, was so painful for me because they were trying to control me and it wasn't working because of the injury that I had uh, sustained in being struck by that blast of energy.
0: Mm-hmm. But your feelings about that experience now are that uh, maybe it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Yeah,
2: it, it you... made it seem, uh, you know, extremely threatening, mortally uh, dangerous. But
0: is that it? is that it because know, of the fear of the unknown?
2: Uh, that was definitely a huge factor. Okay. You know, the pain, the the, the claustrophobic, the dim, dimly lit, mm-hmm. uh, cramped interior, all nice. of those things, uh, feeling trapped. Um, and perhaps, you know, the weakness I was feeling. I'm trying to escape and trying to fight, and my body's just not responding. You know, the, to feel the urge to be quick and you can't quite... Mm-hmm. Muster the ability to move or move quickly.
0: Enough, Sounds like you know? a bad dream. Yeah.
2: But, you know, there's a lot of other factors that took me a long time to, to realize that um, if they had meant harm or meant to cause me pain or anything like that, it would have been much different. That mm-hmm. I was returned at all, you know, and to a place where I could get help weighed very heavily on the side that. There had to be some sort of, you know, concern for my welfare.
0: They must have, because as you you mentioned, and of course it's in the film, the book, uh, you were dropped. Uh, was it eight feet or so? You were lifted and you were dropped?
2: Well... You know, I don't know, uh, because I was unconscious during that period. Oh, that's right. It, it was
0: it was the other crew that said that they saw you drop or hit the yeah, ground. Yeah, they said it was
2: thrown through the air. Thrown, like, yeah. But um, that was probably an accident. And
0: And, uh, and that you no. thought, and then later you thought that, hey, that they may have brought you into the craft to heal you.
2: Yeah, to revive me, you know. And it's possible, you know, the violence of that blast of energy throwing me through the air, and I'm, you know, they described my my body hitting the ground like a dead man. And, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, John said, like a sack of meat, like a sack of bones, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they immediately were screaming at each other. They said that he's dead, he's dead, because it was that violent. So, you know, if they had, you know, Grabbed my body up and took off. I, you know, I'd have probably been dead. You know, the nearest hospital was over an hour away, mm-hmm. so it was probably a good thing that they were frightened away long enough for me to be taken aboard and and um, revived.
0: Well, that's a real that's a real experience of growth there. Wow, because you know we've done some interviews with uh, my dear friend David Jacobs, and he has a book out now that we're sending a copy to you. Uh, I don't necessarily believe it all, but it's called Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. Have you heard about it yet?
2: I've heard of his, you know, he's a he's a good friend, but I just do not agree with his take on uh, these things, you know, and it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling circumstance when he's, any description of uh, alien-human uh, interaction that varies from this very, limited scenario is really just a screen memory i mean mm-hmm. you know you could just as easily claim that the the terrifying parts is screen memory you know i mean if you can if you go to try to accept this part and reject that part on the basis of what you know
0: yeah well i want to thank you for your perspective on that because i think it's important uh, and if you'd rather us not send you this book we'll send you a different one.
2: Oh, i i I'd like to look at it. You know, I'm, I'm open-minded. But, okay. Uh, you know, there's so many circumstances pointing in the direction of uh, benevolence rather than malevolence.
0: That's correct. Uh, oh, we got to take a final break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking more with our guests, uh, Travis Walton and Jennifer Stein. I've got another question I want to ask her before everything closes down here on 21st Century Radio. So stay tuned.
2: This is Dr. John Mack, uh, author of *Passport to the Cosmos*, *Human Transformation*, and *Alien Encounters*. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus.
0: Sure do miss you, John. But I know you're doing a, you're a lot happier now than you probably ever have been for some time. Our guests are Jennifer Stein, the executive producer and director of *Travis*, a 90-minute film documentary recounting the famous 1975 UFO abduction of Travis Walton. Of course, Travis Walton is also here. You know, I don't believe we have these kinds of experiences by accident, but I'm biased. I'm very biased. I believe that there's a reason and there's a purpose to everything in life. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jennifer. Are you, okay. are you there?
1: I'm here.
0: Jennifer, what do you think about that that statement It sounds like a pretty corny statement, but that's what I believe. I believe that there's a reason and purpose and everything that happens to us in life. And
1: uh,
0: how do you feel about that?
1: Well, um, I don't know you know we, we live with such a blinded perspective on the nature of the larger universe in our lifetimes. So it's very, very tricky to, to know if everything we do has a purpose. I'd like to think it does, and I try to live my life in a purposeful way. Um, and, of course, at the end of my life, I'm going to want to be able to look back and say, well, I did some important things, and they had a purpose. I think what we do have, Bob, is we have the opportunity to take events that happen to us and, and you know, shift them. We, we can shift our perspectives on them. We can shift our memories on them, and we can shift how other people think about them. That's certainly something Travis has done through uh, this film and through his life, (laughs) through writing his book and through dealing with really what happened to him, and so did the other men in this crew. And I'm hoping that when people see this film, it brings some... closure and some healing and some purposefulness, at least to what happened to them. Um, and it helps shift people in their thinking about the whole UFO topic in general. So uh, I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's uh, that, that, that's what I'll give it for tonight.
0: Well, you know, I know that there are researchers such as Bud Hopkins and John Mack and, and, and scores of others who... Uh, there was. They felt that there was some reason, and while they why they were involved or how they got involved, and of course, many of it was basically they were quite concerned by those who were abductees and having these experiences and and losing control of their lives, uh, and uh, and the way the media treated them certainly did not make it easier for them to to regain control of their lives. So it was one of the reasons why I was so proud of Bud Hopkins and John sticking their necks out there because they didn't make very much money on this. Is, that's probably one of the things that the earmarks for most of the people that get involved with serious research. It's not the making of the money. It's not the becoming a star. It is resolving certain information or in, especially in regards to the unknown that there is life in the rest of the universe. And we're never we're not alone. We never have been. That's my bias in this particular area uh what do you think
2: (laughs) you know i'll take the last part first you know the the idea that you know when people who and really it comes down to what people want to believe those who don't want to believe uh no amount of evidence will ever be enough for them for those who have experienced it no more proof is necessary but the people who don't want to believe it always go to that money thing oh you must be getting rich doing that Nobody, not, not Jennifer with this film, no, none of the investigators, nobody could possibly be motivated by the money that's in this field because that's not there. You know, it's a spice, it's a labor of love, and it's a dedication to an idea mm-hmm. uh, or a, a collection of ideas. And, you know, what you were saying about you think that, you know, you're in control of your life, that's, that's a profound question. And like you said, I've become quite the philosopher, in, you know, in my book. Even the, even the 2010 edition, I I quote Aristotle saying, you know, that we shouldn't... You know, I, I was talking about all the coincidences that had happened, and I, yeah. I said we shouldn't attach too much uh, significance to coincidence, because as Aristotle said, uh, it's inevitable that the unusual will sometimes occur. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, these things happen. That's just even... Even when flying up in spectacular ways, that chance would suggest that eventually that's going to happen anyway. But, you know, I've, I've really had some things come into my life in the last six years that um, really have pushed me in the other direction.
0: Tell, tell us about Big on, on
2: the idea of free agency. But, you know, it really seems like the universe... Deliver circumstances and hints at times that are just defy coincidence. Too many, a long series of incidences for it to just be a random accident.
0: Can you give us some examples in your life?
2: Well, you know, a lot of them are personal, you know, but, uh, you know, I listed some of the coincidences that were just in connection with them, the connection between the various people, the actors, you know, and how these things just kind of, you know. You know, it's just kind of curious, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, one of the extras was a cousin and, uh, you know, that I'd never met. And, uh, you know, like uh, the one of the documentaries that had been done on my case was narrated by James Earl Jones.
0: Whoa, boy. Who
2: played across from Arnold Schwarzenegger, who played across from uh, Robert Patrick, who was played Mike Rogers in, in Fire in the Sky. So... Lots of coincidences about you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, people, places, and things.
0: What do you think the purpose was with you in this particular experience?
2: Well, I've really resisted that it was me being their plan. Now, uh, Steve Allen, you know, really go in. Now, I think Kenny's leaning that way that that they were laying for us, that they were waiting for us, that they knew we would be coming there.
1: Hmm.
2: And, you know, there's several outs that we could have left the contract, so they would have had to been right on top of things, or they observed that we were leaving by way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I said, I've resisted the idea, and, and you know, it, when I jumped out of the truck and headed towards there, when Alan was saying that it looked to him I was being drawn towards it. He said this summer in an interview, and Steve said this. You know that, that he thought it was under some outside control, but I've always said, "Hey, wait a minute! It felt to me like it was my own uh, brazen impulse." Uh, but
0: yeah, because uh, you wanted to get as close to it as possible. Is my wrong? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah.
2: And to get a closer look. I was yeah. I thought it would take off. You know, all those ideas were in my head, but but they argued, "Well, if they have mind control, they can think it's your idea too."
0: yeah I guess they could, uh, but you there have been many experiences in which uh, UFOs took off immediately as toward when any someone came towards them in the past. Yeah. so you had every reason to believe that that's quite possible for them to get up and go because uh, yeah. uh, from what I understand, it could be uh, uh, ships like that could have some type of radiation that might not be helpful to anybody.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, for our own good, they're going to try to keep the their distance. But, you know, part of my thought about it taking off is, you know, when we're driving the woods, we'll spot, you know, the wild horses or wild animals, you know, and you yell, hey, look, look, look. And, you know, by the time the crew looks, you know, it's dead. So, you know, it's very common to see something, and, you know, if you don't look, you're going to miss it. Yeah.
0: What's next for you, you uh, Travis? What do you? Where are you going to do? I you know, next? my
2: next trip is to uh, Hong Kong. I've never been there, but I'm. The a,
0: Hong Kong. Wow. On de- uh,
2: December fifth. Uh, are, are
0: are you married?
2: Uh, no.
0: No. Uh, so you're free to go, travel where you need to go. Yeah. Without any worries and concerns about that, so you're going to be going to Hong Kong and uh, you're going to continue this particular work. Is there anything that you really want to to leave with our audience tonight in regards to the, this work?
2: Well, you know, I think it's very important. My main uh, goal is to make people realize that these things, this is, this is a real phenomenon. At the same time, uh, they have to realize that it's not all true. There are misidentified uh, ordinary objects. And, and the people who are working in this field recognize that. Right. So, you know, yeah. people need shape. You know, in, in, my, in my book I lead with, condemnation without an investigation is the height of ignorance. My main plea is take a look at the evidence.
0: Good going. And with that, we got to go. Thank you, Travis and Jennifer, for joining us. Uh, on the web, traviswaltonthemovie.com. Travis's website is www.travis-walton.com. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Courtner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.